You guys can have a seat if you get a chance. Matt, this is a little bit hot. Can you turn me down just a touch? Thank you so much. Naughty Mike. Um, so good to have you guys all here today. Um, probably the best weather ever in July. Amen, right? Should be naturally energizing for all of us. It's uh, pretty incredible just to walk out. You just want to kind of like feel like it's fall, right? I actually walked outside the other day and as a football player, like it smelled like football. You know what I'm saying? And, and the rest of you, never mind. Um, so I want to welcome you tonight. If tonight is your first time here, I want to say, man, it's great to have you here joining with us. Um, we're a bunch of people that are desiring to go after the real thing. Um, and what I, what I mean when I say real thing is we're desirous of King Jesus and not religion or routine. And so um, if you as well are tired of religion, then, then you'll probably in, enjoy your time here. And that encompasses everyone from whatever aspect they're at or wherever they're from. Uh, so it's, it's a blessing to have you here. I have a little girl whose name is Avery, and um, she was visiting uh, Mima's house, which is my, like, first of all, what's up with all these weird grandparent names? You know what I'm saying? It's like Mima, Papa, Peepaw, Peepee. Like, I don't even, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even understand all the different, like, why do we have so many names for these people? Like, back in my generation, when I was a kid, you know, several years ago, it was Grandma and Grandpa, you know, like... So anyway, she's visiting Mima's house and last Saturday, and I call her on her celly through my mom, and uh, even though she likes to think she, that her Barbie cell works, you know, um, I always ask her, like, what are you doing over there? And she's like, I'm texting, you know, so I don't know if that's good or bad, but we'll see. Um, and uh, I called her just to talk to her because I was missing her. And, and at the end of the conversation, probably for one of the first times, not prompted by me, not elicited by me. Um, she was wanting to get off the phone, and, and you know when Avery wants to get off the phone, because it's just like, I'm out of here. You know, like, I'm done with this. There's no, like, formal goodbye. But this time, right before she got off the phone, she said, I, I love you, Dada. And then she, just, then she just rolled. Like, the phone dropped, and, you know, Mima picked up. But, but I hadn't said I love you first. It was like one of the first times where she just said it. Now, I'm not claiming that my little girl Avery understands when she says, I love you, what that means. But we clearly do have something special, right? And so I was thinking about this, like, before I was a parent, I was always wondering what that would feel like. That's one of the things, before you're a parent, or when your wife gets pregnant and you get on that journey of having kids, you wonder, what is it going to be like when your kids say, I love you? And, and then in that moment, and, and I've experienced it a couple different times, but I was like, this is, this is pretty sweet, you know? And I just sat there on the phone, and my mom was talking. I didn't hear a word she was saying for a couple minutes. And, um, and I just kept thinking, like, my little girl said, I love you. Now, as I'm describing that to you, it's difficult for all of you to, like, experience that because you weren't on the phone, and Avery's not your daughter except one of you in here, right? Um, but, but some of you parents, you have experienced that with your own kids. And some of you will be parents, um, hopefully. Mo- that's mostly in this section. Some of you over here will be parents. And, and maybe you'll get to experience it. And then when you're sharing your own story, like, like you'll know it. And it's like through me sharing, you, you just, like maybe you get a glimpse. You see what I'm saying? I, I've been thinking a lot about John. We've been studying for Sean and... 
this character of John is a very intriguing man. And I've been, I've been trying as best I can, and Jason has been trying as best he can, and last week Jason Myers, we're trying as best we can to get into the pen and the heart of this guy named John. And so I, I really didn't know what I was looking for, but I just opened up to the Gospel of John, and Jason's already read from it tonight, and I just started flipping through the pages, and I really didn't know what I was looking for. I was just like, I just, I want to continue to understand John. I want to continue to know what he's saying. And then I got to John chapter 13. And I was like, oh. And John chapter 13 is a story which John writes about from his own account. When Jesus, out of love, verse 1 in chapter 13 says, bends down and washes the feet of his disciples. And I was thinking about John that at one particular moment in his life, he looked down with his physical eyes, and with his physical eyes, he saw Christ, who he later saw resurrected, who he later would write this gospel and this epistle about. He saw Christ on his knees, washing the gunk and the grime off of his feet. And so I'm, I'm reading this account. And then I'm remembering the chapter that we're studying. And the whole premise is John is describing this doctrine of love. And so for, for me, I sat back and I read the whole passage again. And I stopped when John said, God is love. And I was like... He's trying as best he can, guided by the Spirit, to describe his experience. And for him, his experience, although many at one point, was looking down the back of the Savior as Jesus washed with water his feet. And and so I sat back and I was like, his whole intention is not that these readers would just learn from his experience, but that they would experience it for themselves. You see what I'm saying? That they, through the love and grace of Jesus Christ, would experience this abounding grace and mercy. So I say all that to say, when you read the Bible, and it comes alive like that, can you just feel me for a moment, and that tonight when we look in this passage and we understand the context, Doesn't it just breathe a little bit, my friends? It has some intangible life that none of us will ever be able to explain. And so I encourage you as we journey through this tonight to look at it through the lens of a man who really experienced the love of God. Amen. Last week, and Jason's already alluded to it, my favorite part of Jason Meyer's teaching as we looked at the scripture was the understanding that that we ought to love simply because we have been made a new creation and that's who we are. Well, in tonight's passage, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, get out your Bibles and turn there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. Tonight, the context is still love. The teaching is still under this premise. And John is going to make a very poignant argument tonight through these four verses. So open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 13. If you like mathematics or you're an accountant or you've ever seen Sesame Street, you're going to enjoy this evening because there are a lot of numbers, okay? Verse 13. Are you guys all there? Sam, there. A lot of Sesame Street fans here, I can tell. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Put up verse 13 for me. Now, beginning the numbers, the by this we know is a common phrase that we've seen in 1 John. This is the fifth of six times in 1 John that we're going to see this phrase. And the phrase is a phrase that fits John's overall theme of this epistle. The theme is he desires his readers to be assured in this confusing time where heretics are teaching all kinds of things. He wants his readers to be assured that they're saved. That they, in fact, have placed their faith in Christ, that God has pursued them, and that their lives are assured. They've been justified, put another way. This is a common theme over and over and over. Now, the thing that's beautiful about John, listen to this, this is intriguing, is that he never does it through the realm of what we do. Have you noticed that? When he's trying to to teach his readers about assurance, he never talks about what you and I do. He always begins his argument with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you begin to think through that, you begin to see the beauty of it. Because if all of his argument about assurance was based upon our merit or the things that we did, Then it'd be like this, today I'm saved, tomorrow I'm not, the next day maybe, the next day saved. You see what I'm saying? Back about 10 years ago, there was this rhythm that you always saw in particular churches at the altar, people who who would rededicate their lives like 50, 100, you know, like just over and over and over. It was because they were thinking that their assurance was based upon how they merited themselves and then were viewed by God through that lens. But that's not what John is trying to get through his readers. He's trying to teach them that their assurance can only be found in Christ. And so he says over and over, and he'll say it in the next verse, I have seen and I testify. So believe me when I say as John that it's through Christ that you can be assured. Now some of you struggle very deeply with doubt because ultimately you find your assurance in your good merit or how you are able to live your life. Scripture is clear that the fruits of the Spirit will manifest themselves in you. In other words, you will portray your life and bear fruit because of what Christ has done in you. But that is just the evidence. You see what I'm saying? That is not the root of it. The root of any of our good lives or good deeds is always Christ. And so though he wants his readers to fight doubt He also wants them to stand strong and to be assured to know that through Christ, assurance is possible. That's what I want to tell you tonight. Assurance is possible. Isn't that a tremendous thought? It's possible. We don't have to walk around like James talks about, blown and tossed by the waves of the sea. Assurance is possible. When you're sure of something, you know that it produces a tremendous amount of confidence and gumption in your life. When you're sure of who you want to marry, when you're sure of the direction in your life, when you're sure of your studying for that test that you think you're going to bomb, like when you're sure of it, it just creates this gumption in you that says, like, I'm going for it. And so John desires to portray that. By this we know that we, what's the next word? 
abide. Now, uh, John, as you know, has been very abide happy, right? Like, in fact, 22 times in this epistle, we see the word abide. These are the last five times in these four verses that he ever uses the word. But for John, the word abide is this idea of, and we define it as this, remaining in. In fact, he describes it this way in the scripture. Uh, I am the vine and you are the branch. Whoever remains in me. It's, it's that picture of remaining in him and assurance. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us, what's the next word? Of his spirit. Interesting, eh? He doesn't say Holy Spirit. He doesn't say seed like he has in other places. He uses the word of. I'm pretty sure that's a preposition. Of his spirit. And so you step back from that and you're like, what does he mean by that? He says you can be assured because he has given us of his spirit. So his argument in these four verses is that assurance is possible. And he begins his argument by saying, you can be sure that he abides in you and you because he has given you of his spirit. Now, when I think about this, I think about, first of all, the word given. The spirit is a gift of God's grace, which he allows us to be indwelt by himself. And to say of his spirit, it paints this picture of the source of where the spirit is coming from. I think sometimes we struggle with our imagery of the Holy Spirit. And that we create this like separate identity for it. Where John here connects the identity of the Spirit directly to who? God the Father. Of His Spirit. And it's this piece of this passage that is going to shape the rest of these verses. But for me, and hopefully for you, I step back and I'm like, okay, okay. So I can be sure that He abides in me and me and Him because He has given us of His Spirit. What John doesn't say is how we know the Spirit is in us. Have you ever struggled with that before? Like, how do I really know if the Spirit is inside of me? Do I feel different? Do I look different? Do I morph somehow? Do my clothes fit a little bit obscurely? How do I know that the Spirit abides in me? I want to ask you two questions. What are your expectations of what the Spirit is? As a Christian in this room, What do you expect the Spirit to be? In fact, I'll add another thing. What do you expect the Spirit to do? Think through that. What are your expectations of the Spirit? You see, it's your answer to that question that shapes your answer to the previous question. What what does it feel like? What does it look like? You expect, based upon whatever it may be, some of you have expectations about the Spirit, Because of the word of God. I would say those are good. Others of you have expectations about the spirit because of some burden that you've had or some experience where you got burnt, etc. Where do those expectations come from in you? Now, I want to reveal something to you. I unfortunately oftentimes associate some high level of emotion with the spirit of God. That's one of my expectations. In a worship gathering or in a time when the word's being preached and I get overwhelmed with emotion, I automatically, in my vocabulary, associate that with the Spirit of God. You see what I'm saying? I, I, in fact, I, I would say something like this. Man, the Spirit is strong. Well, as I was thinking about that rhetoric this week, I wonder, is the Spirit never strong? Like, isn't the Spirit always strong? 
And so, yes, there are clear biblical times where there is tremendous emotional outpouring when the Spirit indwells His people. We've already talked about the difference between being baptized by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. Let me make that quick differentiation. To be baptized with the Spirit happens when we are justified or when we begin relationship with Jesus. We see that at the Pentecost all at once for the apostles and for all of us after that. At the moment when Christ calls us, we are baptized in the Spirit. And then we saw several times in Acts when the apostles are filled later with the Spirit. But listen, that filling isn't always associated with some tremendous emotion. You see, I think sometimes that we think that the strength of the Spirit depends on the amount of which we see the Spirit's power. In other words, we always are waiting to see the Spirit manifest itself in some miracle. But, if it's from the Spirit of God, if it's of His Spirit, then do you understand that sometimes the Spirit will reveal itself in a still, small voice? Or sometimes the Spirit will reveal Himself. I mean, first of all, the Spirit in John says that that it will always guide us into all truth. It will always convict us of sin. Like, those are the roles of the Spirit. But I feel like what we do is we, we lump these expectations on the Spirit, and based upon those expectations, then we vocalize. But if it comes from the Spirit of God, that means we can look at the Scriptures and learn a lot about how our expectations should change about what the Scripture says about who God is. Do you see what I'm saying? And so look, many of us in this room have come in with this certain list of, well, I think the Spirit is inside of me because I felt this or I did that. That may very well be true. But it must always go against the Scripture. If you're just basing it on your feelings or your senses, my friends, we can easily become in error. And then we could easily attribute some human emotion to the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? Now this is going to shape the rest of our discussion. He fleshes out his argument in verse 14. Next slide, Andrew. I gave you props last time, now you're a little slow. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Let's keep the number train rolling, shall we? Savior of the world. Does that seem like a typical phrase for you, right? You may think so. Two times in the New Testament, two times in the New Testament, do we see this phrase, Savior of the world. First in John chapter 4, and the second right here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. Interesting verse, especially the makeup of it. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Savior of the world? Many of us instantly just think of our own... um, experience with Christ. I've shared this with you before a couple years ago, but my first encounter with evangelism happened in, uh, I believe it was the second grade. I had one of the Gideon Green Bibles. Any of you guys like the Gideon Bibles? Yeah, those are awesome. An amazing translation. And um, I, they, the Gideons had passed out these Bibles, and this little guy, um, he cussed a lot. And so I figured, hey, this guy needs Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And so we kind of worked you know, we kind of worked through this thing, and, and I invited him to come in this little concrete tube one day. I said, hey, dude, can you meet me out there in five minutes? You know, what do you call those little concrete tubes on the playgrounds? What do you call those? Tubes? Okay, thanks, Dave. Brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, so, and so I invited him, and, and, and so we get in there, and my, the first words out of my mouth is, hey, dude, I noticed you cussed a lot. Good chance you're going to hell. You know, I mean, that was my first line. I, I wouldn't recommend that, first of all, okay? And, um, but, but then I went on to describe to him 
without even knowing what it, what it meant or how I understood it, that Christ could be your Savior. You see, I, I didn't understand it. And in fact, I've noticed myself at different times use that word and then forget just to pause and let the weight of that word really sit on my shoulders. Now, for me and for many of you, Christ, in fact, is your Savior personally. He, by His work and His grace, has saved you from your own depravity by taking on the wrath of God, by raising from the dead, and becoming the victor. But the Scripture doesn't say that He's the Savior of you. Troublesome, eh? It says He's the Savior of the world. Now, I want to paint this picture for you. The difficulty is, if we begin to see this Scripture just through the lens of an individualistic realm, then the saving work of Christ essentially is lowered. When this says that he's the savior of the world, I want to I paint your attention to different passages that talk about in Christ's return, it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And in the end, you and I can all believe the passages in Revelation that talk about the ultimate victory of Christ. Does that mean that he will save everyone? And does that mean that he can only be the savior of the world if he saves everyone? No, it does not. His savior of the world statement does not depend on how many he saves. You see what I'm saying? Even though there will be some who aren't saved, it still does not diminish the fact that he is savior of the world. It's that all-encompassing, conquering title of Christ that isn't dependent on anything else except his own power to achieve victory. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And so when all of a sudden this phrase, Savior of the world, comes out, yes, it has power for you and I, but it's this all-encompassing, conquering Christ that we see the picture of. And John says at the beginning of this verse, we see and we testify, like this is all that we're doing. So he builds this argument of assurance on first of all, the Spirit is given to you. And the second thing that he's going to talk about here in verse 14 is because the Spirit is given to you, one of the evidences of the Spirit inside of you is you believe the gospel. You see, Scripture over and over tells us that the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. The world Christ makes no sense to, but to you and I, whose scales have been opened Friends, isn't the cross the saving work that we're attracted to? Of course it is. The Spirit has opened our eyes and allowed us to see the power of the gospel. How can you be assured that the Spirit lives inside of you? The first thing from this passage is that you believe the gospel is true. And and so some of you are like, well, 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 what do you mean? What's the gospel? I've I've attached myself to many different forms of the gospel. Well, he goes on to say in this piece what he's talking about. We've seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The gospel in the form that John's talking about now is Christ coming and his saving work being the focus. Now, if you're like me, there's something very, very interesting in this verse. I look at this and I see the word sent. And I was reading uh, this past week, and I was just looking at that word, sent, sent, sent. And I was intrigued by it. I was like, what's, like how often have, we, have I heard a teaching on the doctrine of the Father sending the Son? And I thought to myself, self, not too often, right? 
And, and so I began to do a little research. And so I'd like to share that with you all. Not that you have a choice. Uh, I was waiting for a nod, but no nods. Um, in Matthew, listen to this. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, there is one mention of Christ being sent from God. Uno. Uno mas. Right? Uh, then, then the next Gospel is the Gospel of Mark. Guess what we see in Mark? One mention. And, and I've counted, so, it's, you know, and some of you may come back and say, well, what about this one? Well, maybe plus or minus a half, okay? Right? So in Mark, there's one. The Gospel of Luke, which we studied here, wrote to a man named Theophilus and to Gentiles, Roman officials specifically, there's five mentions. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Quick math, Jamie. Is it, is it? Seven, thank you. Um, I appreciate the help. I was like, six? No. Seven mentions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, these Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they all seem to have the same theme, thrust. Then I opened to the Gospel of John, which has already been mentioned by Jason, is the same author who wrote 1 John. 43 mentions of God sending the Son. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not Captain Obvious, but if the first three synoptic Gospels have seven and John has 43, I think you could agree with me that maybe it was somewhat important to John, right? Now, I, I don't want you just to take my word for it. I, I want to show you some of these just so we can get on the same page. And then I think we're going to better understand this doctrine of why the Father sending the Son is so important. First slide. This is in John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. By the way, if you happen to, do, to count, there's like 25 to 30 of these before chapter 9. I mean, this is a continual thrust of John. Next slide. Jesus answered them in John six twenty nine. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Well, who did God send? Christ. He's pointing to Himself. That you believe in the one whom He sent. Next slide. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Okay, again, very important. Next slide. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And He said to the Jews... Uh, the, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, "How is it that this man has learning? Um, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied?" Verse sixteen. So Jesus answered them, "My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me." Jesus keeps referring to this idea that God has sent him. Next slide. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Are you, are you guys getting the picture, right? Can, can we li- just, okay, keep going. Next slide. Now this is, this is one of the most significant. Okay, John chapter 12, I could have, we could have done many. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save the world. Now listen. We talk all the time with Matthias that Jesus was not an afterthought. In other words, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and it wasn't like God was like, uh, what are we going to do now? Like this, like, this is horrible. You know what I mean? Like, Adam, they just blew it. What are we going to do? Wham, bam, bam, bam. Jesus. It, it didn't happen. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created it. The Word there is Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus was not an afterthought. He always was. And so, and so why the focus on God sending the Son? You, you see what I'm saying? Why so contingent, almost many of your arguments, on the fact that God has sent you as Savior? Interesting thought. Now, I think we'd all agree that the Trinity is a mystery, right? That God is somehow one being Father, Son, Spirit. And we've talked many times before about God reveals Himself progressively. Go back to verse 14. 14. There you go. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So, at the end of that whole thing, as I was looking through John, I was like, why? Why 43 mentions in John and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 7? Well, first of all, John is the latest gospel to be written. In fact, it's so late that it's written after the destruction of the temple. And so John has this perspective, A, as a disciple, and B, as someone who writes after the temple has been destroyed, that some of the other gospel writers do not have. And so when John writes and has this focus and almost agenda of continually coming back to how the Father has sent the Son, I want to propose two theories to you, even though I think there's more. The first thing is that God in His infinite, sovereign wisdom has provided us the Word. Now, does God need to explain Himself for His own benefit, my friends? Does he somehow need to define who he is and, and somehow that benefits him in the long run? No, but he graces us with the opportunity to get to know him better by reading his word and seeing glimpses of who he is by the way he describes himself. And so for John, as we read it, we see this picture of Father God sending the Son who sends the Spirit, and then on the back end, in Hebrews especially, Jesus being our intercessor back to God. You see, it, I think you would agree, with the Spirit speaking to you, helps us understand this mystery of the Trinity just a little bit. That theory is the lesser, is the lesser significant one. The more significant one is found right here in this verse. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son, what's the next two words? To be. Now, it's right here embedded in this little verse in 1 John that you realize John's purpose. His purpose is to show how God gave purpose to Christ, how Christ came and humbly and obediently followed his father to the T, becoming the better Adam who didn't get it wrong, becoming the better David who didn't get it wrong, and all these other Bible characters. He had purpose from the father to go and live obediently to reveal love and not conceal it. And so right here we see the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. God's action in sending His Son to perfectly and obediently follow the Father so that you and I could have a way to the Father and we could have a picture of what it looked like to have purpose. And through Christ, follow through. In obedience, Jesus says in John 14, 
If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Jesus in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, what does he keep talking about? The love that the Father and the Son have. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. God uses John to reveal to us this mystery of the Trinity that God in his action sends his Son to reveal the purpose for which he was sent to ultimately glorify the one who sent him. And it's in that moment that you and I sit back and look at that little verse and we're like, interesting. Still a lot more work to do. Verse 15. Verse 15, Sloan McGee. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Another word, abide here. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So his argument is what? That you can have assurance. Assurance is possible. What does he start with? He starts with, the Spirit is inside of you. That's your first assurance. And because the Spirit is inside of you, you know the Spirit is inside of you because you believe the Gospel. And what's the second thing that he says here? He says you will confess the Gospel. If you want to know and be assured, you'll know that because of the stirring of the Spirit in your life, you will not just believe the Gospel, but you will testify to it. Now, there's something beautiful that happens in John, and I want to take you through this. What I've been thinking about from this particular verse is, what are the benefits and the blessings, even here and now, of experiencing the love of God? What are those? Well, John has made those crystal clear, and I want to I take you through these. First of all, he began uh, uh, almost backwards in verse 14, when he revealed his love by sending his son Jesus. So one of the first blessings and benefits of being able to experience God's love came in the personal work of Christ. In First uh, John chapter 1, verse 4, it says that through Jesus, we can have complete joy. In uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says that his blood cleanses us from all sin pretty big blessing from his love. In chapter 1, verse 9, it says uh, we, we get the picture from Christ of faithfulness, justice, and forgiveness. A tremendous blessing of the love of God. We also see in chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus is the righteous advocate. That one of the blessings of the love of God that we get to experience is that Christ is the righteous advocate. In chapter 2, verse 2, he's what? The propitiation. He took on the wrath of God. In chapter 2, verse 20, he sends the anointed one, the Holy Spirit, to reside in us. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we can be called children of God. Now, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest blessings of being able to experience the love of God is to be able to have the privilege and the opportunity to tell others about it. And that's why John fulfills this argument with if you're experiencing the love of God, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, which is your, which is your assurance, it's not just that deep down in your heart you'll believe that the Holy Spirit is real and that you'll believe the gospel and that you'll believe what God's done, but you'll talk about it. It'll naturally be what you share. And that is one of the greatest blessings and privileges of being able to experience the love of God. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever looked at it through that lens before? 
do you look at testifying about the gospel more as a duty and less as a privilege? There are so many in this world who, have, who still have the scales on their eyes and have heard from no one about how the love of God has affected their life. Let me just pose this for you. What would happen if all of a sudden the Christian nation, starting in America, got so excited about the opportunity that we had to confess and testify about what Jesus has done? Do you understand what would happen? They wouldn't just see us sharing Jesus as this thing that we've simply been called to do. They would know that it was our genuine cry. Look, I have to tell you, not just because I've been called to, but it's the natural outflowing of my assurance of knowing King Jesus. And so John keeps coming back to this idea of you will confess it, you will testify, and then God will abide in him and he in God. And in John's context, the big thing is that Jesus is the son of God. Again, these heretics are constantly preaching against that very fact. I want to encourage you guys. The reality is many of you have only told Christians in the last year about the love of Jesus. That does us good, right? Can we agree? In fact, I would say that Christians need to be talking with one another about the love of God a whole lot more than we're doing. But the reality is the last time that you had an opportunity to share with a non-believer about the love of God and how it's affected your life, cowered, backed away, and you saw it as duty and not an opportunity. The early Christians saw it as a blessing. And no matter what the blessing brought them, they connected it with suffering, and they were okay with that because they truly understood the gospel. Verse 16 says this. So, and, and you love the word so, right? This is, and this is John's like benediction statement, right? <laughs> so, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for who? The moment of participation there. Hooked on phonics, right? So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for what? Us. Now, l- let me paint this for you. So his argument has been you can be assured. It's possible that you can be assured. And he says this, the Father has given you the Spirit. And so we already wrestled through that. Okay, so how do I know the Spirit is in me? John answers the question. You'll believe in the gospel. You'll testify and confess about the gospel. And deep down, you know that God's motive is love. And in his benediction statement, he says, so we, encompassing we, have come to know and not just know, but believe that God is a loving God, that he is just, that he is accomplishing his purpose for his will and his glory's sake. And I can picture the man now as he looked down the back of Jesus, washing his feet, saying, I have come to know and believe this love of God. And it wrecked his heart so, and it caused him at times to weep. And listen, church, I guarantee you that this man, John, struggled to take that love for granted. I can't shake you hard enough, and you can't shake me hard enough. We have to pray that God would just give us a glimpse so that we could continue to know and believe. Because when you're assured, you will testify it. You have to. You have to confess it. 
God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God, and God abides in him. The last of the 22 abides. In closing, in this verse, John really desires his readers to be emptied of their doubt and to be completely assured that the gospel of grace, which has come with the motive of love, can completely change your outlook on your purpose. Now check this out. Jesus, in his last days with the disciples, John records this in chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Like So the doors are locked. Jesus all of a sudden is there. And he said to them, peace be with you. That would be a little bit startling, eh? Like of all the things he could have said there, the doors are locked, there's Jesus, and he says, peace be with you, you know, and also with you. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Listen to this, please. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. You see, assurance isn't just something that John really hopes his readers grab a hold of. He hopes and believes and trusts that assurance in the gospel will cause his readers to be reminded of their call to be used by the empowerment of the Spirit to be a voice for the gospel in this dark and dying world. Will you and will I see it from that same light? As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Where? Where is he sending us? Where is he calling us to go? Soulard, for sure. Wentzville, yes. St. Charles, yes. But more, he is calling each of us as individuals to be reminded, just as John used the 2B of our purpose. And the blessing of 1 John is he keeps telling his readers, your purpose is possible. It's not just this pipe dream. You can live with the assurance and then spread the love of Christ in whatever context, whatever neighborhood, whatever job situation. As the Father sends me, so I send you. And the beauty of the disciples is they went. Will you? Let's pray. God, I ask that through your scriptures, through the power of who you are, that we would truly see your love as the motive for all the things that you have called us to do. And I pray, God, just as John reminded his readers, that you will remind us of our purpose. 
And God, I pray right now in this room for those who have no idea who you are. I pray that by your tug, you'll reveal to them that it's only through you and your gospel and your grace that anyone can have any purpose at all. God, I pray that you will cause a stirring in our souls that would desire to see this purpose in our life of simply glorifying you in all that we do. So God, please come, please call, and please God, accept our cries for you to save us. In your holy and awesome name, let's stand and respond. Sweet Jesus Christ, my clarity. 